This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Former President Donald Trump was banned from Facebook, Twitter and Google for his role in stoking the January 6th insurrection. And Trump is now escalating his battle against the social media giants with three separate class action lawsuits. I'm filing as the lead class representative a major class action lawsuit against the big tech giants, including Facebook, Google and Twitter, as well as their CEOs, Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai and Jack Dorsey. Three real nice guys. Trump and the Republican National Committee began blasting fundraising solicitations almost immediately after he announced the lawsuits yesterday. Joining me is Jim Dempsey, who teaches at UC Berkeley Law School. What is the basis of uh, President Trump's lawsuit? Well, President Trump argues that Facebook and Twitter and the other platforms have censored him by denying him access, by shutting off his accounts. And he claims this is a violation of his First Amendment rights. Unfortunately for Mr. Trump, the First Amendment just flat out just simply does not apply to the actions of private entities. The First Amendment protects us against government censorship, but doesn't have anything to say about the decisions made by private companies. An internet group said that the action shows a deliberate misunderstanding of the First Amendment and was without merit. Is the problem that these tech giants are private and can decide what they want to do on their platforms? That the problem for the president good for the rest of us that all of our media in the United States is privately owned. We don't have government media. We don't have government uh, newspapers. We don't have government social media. So the First Amendment protects uh, Mr. Trump and protects all the, the rest of us against government censorship. It protects us against the government controlling our speech. Um, it protects us against uh, government infringements on free expression as well as exercise of religion. But it has nothing to say. It simply has nothing to say about what private entities do or say. In fact, what President Trump is asking for, which is trying to force Twitter and Facebook to carry him, that would in fact be a violation of whatever First Amendment rights Facebook and Twitter have. The government can't force someone to shut up, and the government, including the courts, can't force anyone to speak. So you can't have forced silence by the government and you can't have forced speech and forcing Twitter or Facebook or others to give a platform to the president without basically forcing them to do something that they can't be forced to do. To try to get around that, Trump is arguing that the tech giants work with the government to censor Americans and thus they're state actors who can be sued. Would that argument work? I don't think that's going to work. It's a pretty high bar to make a, a private entity into a state actor. You know, Mr. Trump, when he was president, was pretty effective himself at uh, jawboning the media and people work the ref, so to speak, on both sides of the aisle. But that doesn't make the platform a state actor. That doesn't make the social media company a state actor. So I don't think that's going to work either. Something has to go pretty far to be said that a private entity becomes a state actor. Tell us about Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Yeah, Section 230 has become a, a bit of a punching bag from both the left and the right. President Biden, uh, when he was a candidate, actually said it should be repealed immediately. 
So in that weird sense, President uh, Biden and uh, former President Trump actually agree with each other. Uh, They did so for opposite reasons. And it's that people attacking Section 230 are attacking it with very different outcomes in mind. Section 230 says two things. First, it says social media platform, Google, Facebook, Twitter, is not to be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information they carry. So the speaker, the user, the content creator is liable for what they say, Twitter, Facebook, Google, not liable. Secondly, Section 230 says that the companies are free to pick and choose what content they carry. If they consider something to be obscene, I'm reading from the statute, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected, again, quoting the statute, the companies are free to pick and choose what they carry. And when you think about it, what former President Trump is asking for would just be chaos. So he's saying that he has a right, and I guess every person has a right to insist that their material be carried. If you don't like what I'm saying on this interview, I can't go and force you to carry my quotes. If I submit an op-ed to the newspaper, or if I call the, the radio station or TV station and say, I want to be on your show, and they say, no, what you have to say isn't uh, worth newsworthy or it's otherwise objectionable, I can't force them to put me on the air. I can't force you to carry my interview. But that's basically what Mr. Trump is asking for. It would just be chaos because then the the platforms would have no ability to control their service. They would have to carry all kinds of hate speech and racist stuff. You know, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of content that is legal but objectionable. A lot of hate speech, unfortunately, is lawful. You can't be censored for it. But the platforms, both the traditional ones, radio, TV, as well as the social media ones, don't have to carry it. And what Section 230 says is you're not required to carry something you find objectionable. And the alternative would be chaos. And I think that conservatives who criticize this portion of 230 aren't really thinking ahead very far uh, because they would just hate an environment in which all kinds of anti-Christian speech would have to be carried and all kinds of hate speech or all kinds of offensive material would have to be carried if, if Section 230 were eliminated. That would just be chaos. Trump's legal team is asking the judge to declare that Section 230 is unconstitutional. Suppose you have a judge who's political and wants to make a statement. Could the judge do that? Well, a judge could. I don't think it would survive all the way up the line. The Supreme Court has been very strong, both conservatives and liberals, in recent years on free speech. First Amendment issues, particularly religious freedom issues, but other First Amendment issues as well. But at the same time, I think the conservative majority is also pro-private property and pro-private business and is not going to get into a situation where it's forcing private business to carry content of someone the private business wants to moderate and control what's on their platform. So I would hope that no judge would use a case to make a, a political statement. But I'm pretty confident that any such lower court decision would not survive on appeal. Do you think that this suit will be dismissed 
early on at the motion to dismiss stage before there's any discovery? Yeah, I think it will. Um, I don't know that any discovery would add anything uh, to the case. Anyhow, facts such as they are, are in the complaint. Um, So most people are saying this is more of a political and fundraising move by Mr. Trump than it is uh, a coherent legal effort. And I think, again, to me, what what they're asking for here is um, internally inconsistent. On the one hand, they're saying that Twitter and Facebook should be liable uh, for the content they carry. And on the other hand, they should be required to carry content of anybody and everybody. Um, if you make the, the platforms liable for the speech of uh, their, their users, the platforms are actually going to censor more. So the theories here just aren't, aren't very coherent. The First Amendment law, I think, is pretty clear that um, there's no state action. There's no application of the First Amendment to, to the actions of, of private entities. Big tech is really unpopular, and a Florida law was supposed to go into effect prohibiting social media platforms from suspending the accounts of political candidates, and that was blocked by a federal judge in Florida. Well, the um, Florida uh, state legislature adopted and governor signed uh, legislation that was intended to address some of the issues or some of the concerns around Section 230 and um, included a provision uh, that would have required uh, the platforms to carry uh, views of candidates. I don't think that was a very, again, a very well-considered provision in the first place because um, you really don't want, the, again, the platforms to be told, you you know, you must carry the views of, of the powerful. How then do you pick and choose among which candidates you do carry and you don't carry? And again, it would just be chaos, uh, involve the courts and all kinds of minute decisions about what gets carried or what gets promoted by the algorithm. Uh, But that law was struck down. So in essence, Section 230 survived against that state legislative challenge. I don't want to predict uh, where that case will go as it proceeds. But look, two things can be seemingly contradictory. Things can can be simultaneously true. one, the tech companies, the big platforms, are probably too big. They probably do have too much power. They probably do have too much inf- uh, information about us, and um, they probably do exercise too much control. But at the same time, the First Amendment and um, the Section 230, to my mind, are not are not the problem. And trying to use the First Amendment against the companies. Uh, the First Amendment protects the companies. It, it can't really be turned against them. Um, that's just the wrong approach. And uh, Congress is obviously struggling, and the Justice Department and the courts and the Federal Trade Commission are struggling with the antitrust laws and whether antitrust is the way to think about this. So uh, there's a real, I think there's a real problem here in terms of the power of the, of the, the big tech companies. But um, this lawsuit isn't going to be the isn't going to be the way that that those really serious problems are resolved. Thanks, Jim. That's James Dempsey of UC Berkeley Law School. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. 
Americans are eagerly waiting for the pandemic to end, except that is for thousands of federal inmates who dread it. These are the 4,400 prisoners released to home confinement under the CARES Act, released until the pandemic ends. Once the government declares the end of the pandemic, about half of the inmates will be forced to return to prison, even though they've followed all the rules since their release. It's because of a memo by the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel issued in the waning days of the Trump administration, outlining its interpretation of the CARES Act's home confinement provision. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. So, David, tell us about the CARES Act and who was released under the home confinement provision. Sure. So typically, typically prisoners are eligible to be released to home confinement in either the last 10 percent or the last six months of their sentences, whatever happens to be shorter. So, you know, that applies to a lot of a lot of people, but it's obviously limited. After COVID hit, the CARES Act expanded the Bureau of Prisons powers in that area, allowing them to release prisoners who are at least halfway through their sentences. And so that made thousands more people eligible than they've ever been eligible before. And I believe the current the current number of prisoners who are kind of released pursuant to that expansion of the CARES Act is around 4,000. 4,000 people who are at home with ankle monitors rather than sitting in a prison cell who, if not for the CARES Act, would you know have been in prison this whole time. And not many of them have been sent back for violating the terms of their release. No, only a tiny fraction of them have been sent back either for committing new new crimes or for you know violating some of the strict rules of home confinement. You have to wear an ankle monitor. You have to you know, report to prison officials a few times a day. They call and you have to be available to check in and that sort of thing. You can't leave your home unless you know you have special permission or you're you know working a job, something along those lines. But yeah, you know for for the most part, this has been a, a successful program. Only 190 of of the prisoners sent home have actually been been sent back to prison, so a very small percentage. And despite the restrictions, some prisoners have been able to restart their lives. Tell us about Brian Carr. Yeah, so, you know, Brian Carr, for for example, you know, was was, was sentenced for a drug conviction, serving his sentence at a a prison camp in Fairton, New Jersey. But he was released under this program and started trying to rebuild his life in Baltimore. He's living with family, and he's seeing you know, children who he hasn't been able to see regularly while he's in prison. And he's sort of planning for his future, hoping to apply to technical school at some point, hoping to eventually start some kind of logistics company that could you know, transport cars from dealerships across the country. So he's really kind of trying to, to move on with his life and kind of build a, a future for himself. So now he's faced with this new possibility, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel wrote a memo during the Trump administration. Tell us about that. So, yeah, it's kind of the dying embers of the Trump administration, the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department, which is a you know, an office mostly mostly staffed by career officials who who basically answer kind of legal questions facing the Justice Department. You know, they're not they're not producing kind of binding legal opinions the way a judge would, but they are answering legal questions and, and their opinions kind of reflect the sort of stance that the government is taking. And so, you know, officials in that department were asked to determine, you know, what would happen to these prisoners once the pandemic ended, because the way the CARES Act is written, it limits this expansion of the Bureau of Prisons' powers to the emergency period of the pandemic. So when it's no longer a pandemic, you know, can these people stay free or do they have to go back? And the Office of Legal Counsel concluded, and this was a legal analysis rather than, you know, a policy judgment, they concluded that under the language of the statute, um, these prisoners would likely have to be sent back. Some who, 
you know, might already have moved into that last six months, last 10% of their sentence period that was all, that was covered before, they might be able to stay home. But about half of the of the 4,000 who are currently, you know, at home pursuant to the CARES Act, you know, will be will be affected when the pandemic's over. And unless the government does something about it, it looks like they'll be sent back to prison. So what's the reaction been? I mean, I think people are heartbroken. Um, you know, it's traumatic to go to prison once. Um, but to to be released, um, to sort of start reintegrating society into society, to see your family again, and then have to return is is a real emotional blow. I think a lot of people are also um, sort of suffering in uncertainty. Um, there are a number of things that could be done to keep these prisoners at home. The Biden administration could grant them clemency, for example, or Congress could pass new legislation, you know, making it clear that. Um, for the people who've already been released under to release the home confinement, um, you know they can they can stay there even after the pandemic ends. But we don't really have an answer. I mean, it seems unlikely that this Office of Legal Counsel memo will be reversed. Um, most people agree that you know actually you know it's a it's a pretty valid legal analysis. Um, and the Biden administration has not made clear what it's what it's planning to do with these with these prisoners. Tell us more about the reaction of the prisoners themselves who've been released under the CARES Act? Um, they're really devastated. Um, you know, they've had to have tough conversations with young children saying, you know, hey, I've been back for the last year, but I might have to have to go home. Um, you know, I talked to, to one man, Robert Lustig, uh, who is in Sleepy Hollow, New York. He's a former FBI agent who um, was convicted of bribery, um, sent to prison for 15 years, finished about half a sentence, and then was sent, sent home. Um, you know, he has avoided getting a COVID vaccine because he's afraid that if he's inoculated against the virus, that'll make it more likely the Bureau of Prisons sends him back when the pandemic is over. Remember, the initial reason for expanding the BOP's authority under the CARES Act was to prevent the spread of the coronavirus in, in prison. So, you know, people are putting themselves at risk to kind of avoid this fate. So have they appealed or have groups appealed to the Biden administration? Um, yeah, you know, members members of Congress have written letters to the Biden administration. These advocacy groups are very active, talking to the media, um, you know, writing their own letters, lobbying the Biden administration as, as much as they can. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's some debate within the advocacy community over whether the OLC memo is the right target. You know, I think, I think you know, privately, you know, some, some people who think that as a matter of policy, it would be a terrible idea to send these prisoners back home, you know, actually don't necessarily disagree with the OLC memo as a piece of legal analysis. You know, the, the statute is written in a, in a way that, you know, can certainly be read as kind of narrowly tailored to this emergency period of the pandemic. So, so you've got groups that are going after the memo. You've got, you know, people who are just urging the Biden administration to, you know, take a different avenue, like, you know, granting these people clemency, um, which, of course, would be better than, you know, from their perspective, would be better than, you know, having these people remain in, in, in home confinement for, for, for years and years. Um, you know, clemency would allow them to kind of fully uh, reintegrate into society and resume their lives. Has the Justice Department or the Bureau of Prisons definitively said they're going to return all these prisoners they haven't. Um, they said basically um, it's a matter for the end of the pandemic. This is something we'll figure out uh, at the end of the pandemic. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, uh, which is, 
you know, not the answer that these people, you know, want to want to hear. I mean, they they want certainty. They want to be able to plan for the future. They want to know whether they can afford to take out a loan, buy a new car, you know, buy a new house. Um, all the sorts of financial decisions that would be affected if someone's taken to prison and you know their income is, is you know disappears. What constitutes the end of the pandemic? I mean, it, it's a it's a very technical you know question as it relates to this to this law. Um, it's just when the federal government declares that the emergency period is over, um, which you know is unlikely to happen you know, soon. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's probably not going to happen this summer. But, you know, it certainly could happen by the end of the year. Now, prisoners that are normally released to home confinement, are those near the end of their sentences? Yeah, it's typically it's um, before the BOP's authority to do this was expanded. Um, it was either the last 10 percent of your sentence or the last six months of your sentence, whichever, whichever is shorter. Um, you know, that's when you're eligible for home confinement. And, and typically, unless you broke a rule, when you went home, you weren't going back. Um, you know, this was to finish out your sentence. It was a little bit of a reprieve. And so a lot of the people who were sent back under the, under the CARES Act, who had longer periods remaining on their sentences, assumed that they would be going home for good. You know, some were even told by Bureau of Prisons officials, um, you're going home for good. Um, and so it's been a real kind of punch to the gut to find out that, no, actually, they may be forced to return. There's a lot of talk about, of course, prison overcrowding. You know, they're looking for alternatives to mass incarceration. That was part of the Manhattan District Attorney's race. So is this offering a model for the future, perhaps? Yeah, I think a lot of prisoner advocates view this as kind of a perfect test run for a permanent expansion to the Bureau of Prisons' home confinement capacities, which, you know, could be a potential solution to mass incarceration, you know, or if not a, um, a cure-all, you know, something that could sort of start chipping away at the problem I and mean, start releasing more people to home confinement more often. It's clearly something that we're capable of doing. There's now firm evidence that people follow the rules. And so the argument goes we should be focusing on expanding the Bureau of Prisons' authority and, you know, emptying prison cells rather than, you know, forcing people back who, who've shown that they can follow the rules. So before I let you go, I just want you to tell us about Jackie Broussard because it was sort of heartbreaking, her relationship with her daughter. She's a mother in, in Fort Worth, Texas, whose, whose daughter was also sentenced because of a drug conviction and, and, and came home in, in December of 2020. And, you know, she made the point that, you know, for her daughter's Definitely, it took months to just kind of reacclimate to, to being outside prison. She wouldn't talk that much. She was sort of nervous all the time. She wouldn't open the fridge. She wouldn't ask for anything. And it took her months to kind of adjust. And at this point now, you know, her daughter has a good job operating a forklift at a warehouse near her mom's house. You know, she's starting to rebuild her life. Um, but she's still got two and a half years left on her drug sentence. So Jackie Broussard, like so many others, is dreading the end of the pandemic. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe-Bellany. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.